Welcome to Behavior Grooves. My name is Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. Given the strange and turbulent times that we are living through, Kurt and I decided to reach out to some of our favorite behavioral science researchers and practitioners to get their take on the novel coronavirus pandemic that is shaking the world. These special edition episodes will explore a variety of different aspects of the crisis and our response to each of those aspects through a behavioral lens. We know that you may feel overwhelmed by the crisis already. It seems Every news story, every social media thread, every phone conversation that we have is focused on some aspect of the pandemic right now. While the news and updated information are essential, we're going to take a different tact. We want to try to understand the science behind our reactions and our behaviors and how science can help us cope and move beyond the current crisis. In each episode, we talk with a different behavioral science expert and get their best thinking on an aspect of the crisis. So sit back. Take a deep breath and listen to our special series on behavioral science and the coronavirus pandemic. Howard Friedman is a data scientist, health economist, and writer with decades of experience in the private sector, public sector, and academia, and he currently teaches at Columbia University. Now, we're talking to Howard today about his new book, Ultimate Price, The Value We Place on Life about how the monetary values assigned to our lives by governments, medical professionals, and insurers can determine who will survive during times of crisis. Wow. Howard, welcome to Behavioral Grooves. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. <laughs> we're, we're very glad to have you. Can we start with just a little bit of, tell us a little bit about Ultimate Price. Why should people be reading it at all, Much, especially right now? Why would, why would now be a good time to be reading Ultimate Price? I can't think of a better time. Uh, right now, right in the public's face, we're seeing human lives being valued. We're seeing the differences of some lives being considered more valuable than others, and the consequences when people start looking at the trade-offs of, in this case, quote-unquote, opening up the economy and saving lives. And if we walk through it systematically, whether it's the early days of testing where we see Tom Hanks and NBA stars who were able to get tests, but common people can't, to situations uh, right now with areas with limited healthcare resources having to allocate ventilators, to then once again, who is going to suffer the most if we do have a more open economy with the virus rampaging? It seems that there's a lot of economic background in this, but there are other factors that go into this. What goes into valuing a life when people do that and government agencies do that? It's, it's truly not just an economic conversation. The important thing to realize is that these valuations, it's nearly ubiquitous. It happens in all different phases of our society, but with different perspectives and different calculations. Uh, civil courts do these types of calculations routinely. For-profit companies are constantly looking at trade-offs between safety and what it'll cost them later. Health insurance companies, life insurance companies do this, but regulatory agencies have cost-benefit analysis as a basic staple in their toolkit, and that's been true for decades. Mm. Well, you know, you mentioned you've got some great historical references in the book about, you know, uh, Ford and the Pinto and uh, VW and things like this. Uh, are there some social norms or maybe let me ask it this way. To what degree do social norms impact the way that we value human life? It's, it's quite interesting because, you know, we have to start with the understanding that perspective matters and purpose matters. These calculations really do vary substantially. So when we're talking about, let's say, the Ford Pinto case, and I'd love to flesh that out a little more for your readers, that's a situation where a company is looking from the perspective of their own private cost-benefit analysis. They're not concerned about society. Mm. They're really looking at their bottom line. And you can contrast that with when a regulatory agency is looking at the perspective of society. And so the scope of what they include is quite different. Uh, like I said, I think it'd be fun to flesh this out because it really is interesting. Yeah, unpack that. Un unpack that for us because I don't know if all of our listeners may remember or were even born when that whole Pinto <laughs> crisis was going on. Yeah. By the way, 
personal note, I got rear-ended while driving a Pinto, and I'm still here, so I am very lucky. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so the Ford Pinto case, it's, it's actually, a, unfortunately, a textbook example now in corporate ethics courses. The context is Ford was looking to introduce a small, low-cost car into the United States. Regulators in the United States were considering increasing the safety standards. Ford was aware that they had a risk in their design. They had a choice. They could have spent money to make the car safer, or they could have delayed, delayed putting in the increased safety enhancements and done their best to delay the regulators in making requirements for cars safer. And on the other hand, they knew that there would be increased injuries and deaths associated with the limitations in their car. Well, they created a calculation. It was a cost-benefit analysis, infamously known as the Ford Pinto Memo. It was sent to regulators to try and convince them that the costs to Ford of making the car safer were vastly higher than the benefits associated with the lives saved, and they had dollar figures put on lives. Well, this was all benign until Mother Jones had a scathing article in 1977, and suddenly the public began realizing that, wait, companies constantly make these trade-offs in safety and they're putting dollar figures on what is it worth to them for me to live or die. As it turned out, Ford massively underestimated what that cost would be. So they ended up paying a lot more in lawsuits than they ever anticipated. And they end up 40 years later still being discussed as a <laughs> poor corporate ethics. Yeah. Well, and you also, I, I think that's a fascinating case study. And, and I learned about it when I was going through both business school and MBA and, and various different pieces, but it comes into play in a lot of different avenues of life. And I thought one interesting piece that you started your book uh, talking about 9-11 and also then the the Boston Marathon bombing, and there were payouts by both. And they were both... Uh, was it Ken Kenneth Feinberg, right? It was the overseer of both of those. And yet they were two very different ways that they compensated uh, the victims uh, after after the fact. Can, can you help us understand and unpack why they were different and what was different about them? I'd be happy to. And you're right. It had the same administrator. Time had gone by. Following September 11th, the government had created a victim's compensation fund, uh, basically to pay the families of the victims a certain amount of compensation with them agreeing not to sue, not to sue the airlines or anyone else involved. They had placed a constraint on Kenneth Feinberg. They said that he had to consider economic impacts, which meant he had to reflect some of the thought process in civil courts. Mm. He created a calculation which thought about the economics a bit. I income was one of the factors he considered, but he also said, no matter who you are, there's a minimum payment that'll be offered, $250,000. He also capped the income. He said, no matter what you're earning, I'm not gonna assume that you earn millions of dollars a year. I'm gonna cap it at a little over 200,000. He added some extra amounts for the number of dependents you had as well. In the end, the payouts ranged from 250,000 to over seven million for the families of the victims who died. That's a 30 times range. Mm. It would have been much, much larger had he not put those constraints in. In some civil courts, you'll get zero. And the cap would have been much, much higher had he allowed the people who had been earning millions of dollars to go into the equation. But the public still was dissatisfied with the September 11 Victims Compensation Fund. Many thought it shouldn't have existed in the first place. But those who accepted that it had existed felt that it should have been equal payments. That is, it shouldn't have had such a huge disparity. Feinberg himself said that it would have been easier for him administratively, fairer or less controversial, if the victims had all been paid the same amount. Fast forward in time, the Boston Marathon bombing happens. A private fund was now created. The government was no longer involved. It wasn't taxpayer money. He no longer had constraints about how he could allocate the money. Mm. For the families of the victims who died, they all got paid the exact same amount. He did exactly what he said he thought it should have been. And I think that's a, he's really quite a, uh, I think a strong role model uh, because he's taking an extremely difficult situation, not only doing his best to approach it from a transparency point of view, 
but he was trying to make it as equal as possible. First in the September 11th, where he had serious constraints, and then in the Boston Marathon bombing, literally following his exact words and saying, I will pay everyone the same amount. So what goes in to that calculation? You mentioned civil courts and the, and the wide variety there. There's different pieces. So what are the factors that are typically taken into account when whoever it is, organizations, for-profit companies, and, and I'm sure it's probably different, but what goes into those calculations and how are they determining that dollar amount that goes into that? So comes maybe, out of that. maybe we start with the for-profit companies. So okay. in their particular case, they're looking at situations where they have a choice. They can invest more in safety that will cost them money and they will have a corresponding outcome later, which is hopefully less injuries, deaths. Uh, along with those injuries and deaths, there are the payouts in civil courts as well as regulatory fines. And additionally, there's that long-term brand impact. So that's a calculation. And um, no exaggeration, there are financial analysts who sit there with spreadsheets and they work through that calculation for companies. That's, that's their job function. What goes into the inputs of that? Now, this is a, an extremely important question. So when they start figuring out what is the cost associated with, let's say, the mortalities, they have to reference it. And they reference back usually to what did it cost in civil courts in previous cases. Now, mm. most settlements are not publicly available, so they have to take the information that's available to the public. The important point that comes with this is the higher a life is value, the more dollars are assigned to the preventable death or injury, the more likely a company will invest in safety. So once again, let's take a very recent example, Toyota car accelerations. Mm. So Toyota was well aware of, they had issues with their acceleration system. They could have invested in correcting it. They chose to not. There were less than 100 deaths due to this issue in the United States. The settlement was on the scale of billions of dollars. That was a B, not an M. On the scale of tens of millions of dollars per victim. Now that sends a message to every other car company that when they go do that calculation, don't put in the 200,000 that Ford Pinto put in back in the 1970s. Put in millions. And when you put that millions in, suddenly it makes a lot more sense to make your car safer. That's really how the dynamics work. So there's also an aspect of um, sort of the arc of social justice, right? You, you write a lot about the um, the injustice or the sort of rather indiscriminate nature of how how this mortality rate plays out across a variety of different socioeconomics, uh, you know, ethnic groups, uh, all these kinds of things. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about? You're you're a, you're a numbers guy. You're 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 a stats guy. So can you talk talk to us about the sort of the statistics that go into uh, the the calculations that make up these different groups? It's a very good point because when you start looking at these settlements, uh, some of them are related to punitive damages. That's that's sending a message. Um, mm -hmm. But the actual uh, payments to an individual often they're also income driven. That is. They look at things such as what is the lost revenue to the family. But income is highly problematic. We have well-established gender pay gaps, well-established mm. racial pay gaps, age gaps, location gaps. All of these play in. So you have all of these biases that would seek to undervalue the lives of minorities, women, people living in certain areas, those of a certain age. So these are factors that all play into the value of those lives from the perspective of that civil court. And correspondingly, it tells companies what they should and should not consider. And I can take you to an extreme example in New York to really uh, give a flavor for it. Please uh, do. I write about it in my book, Cheryl Thurston. So this is a tragic situation. Woman is severely handicapped. She is unable to care for herself. She's in a care facility. She was never supposed to be left alone when bathing, but the care facility left her alone. She slipped into a coma. Within 24 hours, she died. Her sister sued the care facility for negligence. The judgment was that, yes, the care facility was negligent. They failed to do the job they were supposed to do, and as a result, her sister was dead. But 
and as the judge describes in excruciating detail, because her sister never awoke, she did not feel pain, and her sister was not a source of income, but rather she was an expense, there would be no actual monetary award. The judgment was for zero dollars. New York state law has no intrinsic value of human life. Just that minimum value that Kenneth Feinberg insisted on doesn't exist in New York law. And more importantly, the judge added that had her sister been chattel, like a cow or a chicken, then some compensation would have been awarded. It's wow. an incredible statement. Wow. Wow. That, that but just... also, it sent a message. Now, think about this. I'm going to change who you are for a second and imagine that you own a care facility in New York. Mm-hmm. That just sent the message that negligent deaths, no worries, zero settlements. Lives that are less valued are less protected. Lives that are more valued are more protected. When the Toyota acceleration case comes down and you're seeing $10 million per victim settlements, that sends a message to car companies. In New York State care facilities, when the judgment comes down of $0 for this death, that sends a very different message. Well, and you have to wonder, given today in COVID-19 and the prevalence of the outbreaks in healthcare, uh, you know, uh, aging homes and various different pieces, to your point, if that had been the message that was sent, were there uh, systems put in place to think about how we really care and, and keep you know, sanitary and, and all of the things that you need to do put in place because they didn't have to worry about some of those negligent deaths in the past, or at least the cost of those as much as they might have if it would have been more of a Toyota, where that would have been a $10 million uh, you know, jury or verdict going out to that. And it might have, and I get this is conjecture, but there probably could have been some lives saved in in this crisis if that would have been a different outcome in, in the past. I, I don't know if you have thoughts on that or if I'm way off base. Well, I mean, I think it's possible. I, these are all state dependent. So I yeah. want to make sure we're clear. That's New York state law. And, you know, part of our beautiful United States is that every state has very different laws on this. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do think, though, uh, for many of these care facilities, they weren't prepared for a situation like COVID. Yeah. Um, but also, some of them may have been aware, and certainly the New York ones, I'm certainly were probably aware of this particular case. But many companies, and not just uh, nursing homes and care facilities, are very aware right now that the federal government is considering lawsuit protection. What do you think we can do uh, the, when I think about the tremendous diversity of uh, the Toyota case to the the care facility case, right? From zero to tens of millions. Uh, what can we do to find more equity uh, for for people it's just in the United States specifically? So uh, there's no perfect solutions. And once again, you know, you'll see totally different calculations when we talk about regulatory agencies. But if we focus on this perspective for a second, civil courts and of course the link to for-profit companies, there are a few things that I think should be done. One of them, which was pointed out by the judge in that particular case, was there should be some intrinsic value for human life. Uh, Kenneth Feinberg put it right out there. He said, no matter who you are, this is a minimum payment. I don't care if you earned nothing, if you're costing people as a human being. So I think a minimum value is important. I think it's necessary to bake in the corrections for gender bias, rage of wage bias, age bias, location bias. I think it's, if you don't do that, then you are punishing the families for the same thing that they were living through as a punishment as well. So I think that correction is necessary. It's not perfect, right? It's a lot simpler just to simply say, well, this is what they were earning, projected over the next 30 years, multiplied by a factor and we're done. It requires a little bit more effort, but it's not incalculable. And for example, it's well-established fact that Blacks versus whites in the United States, if you control for education, so when you look at both who have graduated high school, both graduated college, both graduated uh, graduate school, there's a 20 to about 25% average income gap across races. 
So it gives you an order of magnitude that you can start correcting for. Gender pay gap, same thing. There's a well-established order of magnitude. So I think those are critically important. It's not a perfect solution, but it does at least send some messages that we're trying to aim for more equitable approaches. Is there uh, an element of years of potential life loss that is taken into this, and how does that be, get played out? So in an income-based method, it absolutely does, because they're looking at the expected number of years of earning. Uh, so it does play out. But once again, we have to be careful with that, because many people are choosing to be caregivers, whether for young children, whether for older people. They are choosing to not earn income. So when people start doing these calculations, they do look at what is the replacement cost. I know this sounds you know, very, very horrible here, but you're literally looking to say, this individual is no longer here, so someone now has to help with the housework and, and help take care of aged parents or help with the children, and that has a cost to it. So those come in, and in fact, it's the exact same calculation we're describing now that comes up in life insurance. Mm. So in life insurance, there's a few calculations that people can do. What makes life insurance so unique is, in the different ways we talk about human life being valued, so far, it's always about someone else valuing my life. Life insurance is the moment where I get to value my own life. And I can do it in a few ways, right? I could talk about the replacement income. What do I think I'm going to earn over the next X years? And what that total will be? That's one way to do it. Another way is you know, expected needs. So this is the lifestyle I want my family to have, and this is the amount of money I will need. Although the reality is most people look at what the premium is that they can afford, pick a number that, quote unquote, feels good and move on. But the true mm. calculation can happen. And that calculation, it can be quite enlightening. Um, certainly anyone who starts thinking about getting close to retirement starts doing a little bit of a calculation like that. Maybe not, maybe not in a Google Sheet or an Excel spreadsheet. Maybe it's just a, in their head. But they are making that mental calculation. And it's quite similar to what you do or can do for life insurance. I've noticed some ads on television recently that uh, promote a they're, they're, it looks like they're promoting to an older demographic uh, because the spokespeople on the on the ad are uh, very gray and they say for only nine dollars and ninety five cents a month you can get life insurance and they never say mm -hmm. how much life insurance you're getting. Not not one time is is the actual value of the of the of the you know life insurance policy mentioned. You Never. can you can get. Well, I, I mean, the first thing is that's really good marketing uh, because they're getting your attention. <laughs> the downside is there's probably a ripoff waiting to happen, and and I'm particularly sensitive to this. Uh, I have aged parents and they've fallen for insurance scams before. And you know what I tell my parents now is, listen, before you plan on signing a contract, please, please, please let me look at it. Let me go through what are the details of what are you paying for and what are they going to give you in return? And it's quite funny because my dad was like, well, what would you know about this? I was like, I said, oh, I spent many years working in the finance industry. I know exactly <laughs> how these models are built. And I said, and people get paid a lot of money to build models that aren't necessarily to your advantage. That's why we get paid so much. Yeah. So, I mean, in all seriousness, um, the reality is people are worried. They're worried about their family. They're worried because many, many of us have lost their jobs and they wanna know that there's something that could be left behind for their children in case something happens or, or other dependents. And this is unfortunately where really good predatory advertising will step in and, and fill a role that we really don't want them to fill. Mm. Yeah. Let, let's bring it back to uh, COVID-19, let, let, let's, if, if we could, and, and the pandemic, uh, the crisis that we're going through right now. How does this valuation uh, impact us during the crisis, this valuation of human life? It, in many different aspects. And, you know, you can see this over time. It, it worth noting, you know, I spent a lot of time in Asia. I was in Taiwan in January with my family. Taiwan has never shut down. And the entire country, and we're talking over 20 million people, has had six deaths. So worth stating before we get into any details about COVID that this could have been a very different world in the United States. That said, if you go back to early March, you might recall hearing about Tom Hanks has tested positive and these NBA stars have tested positive. 
Well, the reality is tests were few and far between. It was almost impossible to get them. I'm looking across the street right now at the urgent care facility that I went to the first week in March because I had chills and a tremendous cough. I was told, mm, you probably don't have COVID. And oh, by the way, we don't have any tests. So go back home and uh, wish you the best of luck. Mm. That was not the best of the news to hear. Now, a couple months later, Tests are readily available in New York. That's great, but it took them months to get there. At the very start, it was the wealthy, the people who are most connected, celebrities. Their lives were valued far more than a regular person like myself. Step forward in time to the peak in many different places. At the point where the healthcare system is overwhelmed and can't provide life-caring services to everyone and decisions have to be made. Whether you want to call it a Sophie's choice or something like that, the reality is many places did get into this situation. Massachusetts even provided guidance to hospitals on if you have to decide who gets life-saving respirators or other care, they said, consider the life expectancy, consider who has the most comorbidities, and as a tiebreaker, consider how old the patient is. Now, mm -hmm. that was their own guidance. The Affordable Care Act has very specific guidance that says Medicare cannot consider resource allocation based on things like life expectancy or age. So there's some different guidance that's being provided. But that's in that other area. That is in that question of who gets the care. We have another situation that's going on now regarding hazard pay, because what we're realizing is our essential workers often reflect people doing jobs that aren't well paid. Many don't even have health insurance, yet we need our pharmacies open. We need our supermarkets open in order to be able to eat. Our public sector still has to be viable. And so they're considering, and some places have offered hazard pay in order to provide some compensation for the extra risk that people are taking on. So once again, that balance of risk and payment is exactly a reflection of how human life is valued. So when you think about the orders that have been come down on food processing plants, that now they have to stay open, even though we've seen a number of them have a high incidence rate of this, and you compare that to maybe some of the professional sports leagues that are uh, anticipating or trying to figure out how to open. Uh, obviously, two very different uh, economic uh, perspectives there. Food processing plants, probably you know a little bit over minimum wage, maybe a little bit more, I don't know. Uh, obviously, your major league baseball players and basketball players are making multiple millions. Uh, is there a difference in how that is being uh, taken into account in your perspective? Well, there's a lot of different factors that are playing in there. Uh, one of them, of course, as you mentioned, is the compensation. The other thing, of course, that is the question of the risk, because when you're in these food processing plants, by the way, many of these plants are in smaller towns, many of them being worked by immigrants, right? Mm -hmm. So we're having people who have come here, they're putting themselves at risk, and you're right, often it's minimum wage. Uh, but they're also in close proximity. Yeah. So you have that situation. For the uh, you know sports stars, they have all the tests they need to take uh, so they can identify who who is you know currently possibly transmitting or not. Um, but also you have this question of what is essential. And I think this is something that post COVID, and we don't know when we'll get into a new normal, but our new normal, will reflect many different things because people are constantly now reassessing what is necessary for their lives, what is nice to haves, and what can they truly do without. We're going to see many sectors of society who will not have a huge bounce back. We'll see some that will ha have been thriving. You know, these uh, wish I had stock in Zoom beforehand. You know, uh, <laughs> the, the Amazons, the Zooms of the world, the Googles, they're fine because they, they actually do fine in these situations. But what we are going to see is things like many corporations and organizations are reassessing how much should they be spending in office space? Is this worth it? And the risk that's associated with it. If many of them are seeing that their employees are pretty much the same level of effectiveness and they're not incurring the expenses. So I think areas such as commercial real estate 
are going to have a really, really dramatic shift over the next few years as companies truly reassess what they need and don't need to spend money on. Yeah. I, in fact, I had a conversation with someone uh, yesterday that brought up two things. One, their company is looking at closing all of their locations where they have 20 people or less. They're just going to they're, they're just going to say it's not worth the risk because we're just going to actually just shut those down and have people work from home. And the other thing that this person said, kind of getting back to this uh, food processing plants, that uh, they almost suggested there might be some kind of conspiracy theory, that there might be something intentional about this. As a statistician, do you think that there's any any water in that? Is there any there there that statistically this is really abnormal for a, a food processing plant to have a high number of, of cases diagnosed in short periods of time? Um, clustering of cases is absolutely what you expect. The fact that you happen to see them in food processing plants, I, I'm not big on conspiracy theories in general. I, <laughs> I, tend, I tend to believe the data. Clustering, though, is exactly what you expect. So, you know, we were talking about it before. I live, I live in the heart of New York City. We are the epicenter of the world for COVID. We also have one of the highest population densities in the world. Yeah. And it's even where you live. So let me give you a, a case in point. They talk about you know the importance of if you are sick, you must social distance. And, and I shared with you a, a personal story about myself earlier that I most likely had it uh, beginning of March. Well, good luck social distancing with the other people I live in, with in a 600 square foot apartment. It's yeah. impossible. So that means my whole family most certainly has gone through the course at this point. It's simply impossible. Um, these are factors that we have to reflect on. So there is absolutely going to be clusterings. Um, I don't think more deeply beyond that. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a shallow thinker in general. I think. Oh no, yeah, no, 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 no. It, it is interesting on, on conspiracy theories, and we've actually done. Uh, a, we have another podcast called Weekly Grooves where we did a whole segment on on uh, conspiracy theories and some of the psychological factors behind it. And this plays right into the reasons why people. There's a whole bunch of unknowns. There's like high costs. It's vivid, and we just have a lot of of people who can you know, extrapolate out from that a number of different things to fit with whatever perspective they, they believe. And so I, I, I totally agree with the idea that, you know, this isn't unexpected to see clusters as, as how the, the virus spreads and how that works. So those I, are I all would good say pieces. It's not that it's not unexpected. It's 100% exactly what is expected. So I would push it much further. Um, <laughs> and, and you'll be on that. The, the reality is, and it's a lesson that I I remember from even back in high school, I had a wonderful teacher back then who said, you will never defeat in a debate someone who thinks illogically using logic. You will lose every time. You're, you're, using, the wrong, you're using the wrong weapon. Oh, oh that is so true. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write that one down. That's a good one. <laughs> that, I'll tell you at the end of this a funny uh, story from when I was um, – talking about measure of a nation my 2012 book if you'd like totally totally unrelated to our main topic but if you'd like i'm happy to share it with you we would we would love to have that um yeah. tim any last covid questions otherwise well i i, I am um I love uh, in looking at the history of your writing and the way that you've approached things you you have a very strong bent towards social justice I guess I'm just just fascinated by this uh, by the aspect of how we value life in a time and, and how we look at social justice in a time when like like right now I, I have I have a friend that lives uh, on the north end of, of Manhattan uh, up in uh, Fort Washington and he said very early early gosh probably even late February he said you know I'm noticing from my high rise that, that I'm seeing a lot of ambulances in poorer neighborhoods. And he said, what do you think that's about? And so, you know, we didn't have an answer at that point. But, you know, within a couple of weeks, it started to come out that there really is a, a, a deep divide between who is who is being um, accosted by this virus and who is not and who is getting treated and who is not. And, and these days, uh, you know, we have enough data actually from multiple countries to understand not only the socioeconomic factors of who is most exposed to the virus, but also we're seeing the survival rates. And we're mm. seeing that people with 
not only more comorbidities, but you know, worse socioeconomic status are are having lower survival rates. So those are all playing into it. But you know, there's even the most recent thing that was literally on the news in the last few days here uh, where I live is the policing of the social distancing still has that same bias going into it. I, I walk, uh, you know, through different neighborhoods with my mask on. And as I go through, I've seen tons and tons of clustering. They have people, uh, they have bars that are providing curbside service. And people are gathering around the bars. You have to pull down your mask to drink. And you have people in tight clusters breaking every social distancing rule possible as they enjoy their, their frosty beverages. None of those people are getting tickets. None of those people are getting arrested. Um, but... They saw the vast, vast majority of people who got arrested for violating social distancing laws were minorities. Mm. And I have seen incredible violations of these social distancing laws. We have There's a law in New York. If you want to go into a store, you have to have a mask on. I've seen at least one third of the people walking around either without a mask or the mask, but just leaving the nose open because it's much more, it's much more comfortable. And that's the explanation they give. None of these individuals are getting ticketed. None of them are getting arrested. And so what we're seeing is even at the enforcement, a lot of examples of brutal injustice. And and you're right. I, I do feel passionately about this because I, I have seen the ramifications of injustice. I've seen it amongst my colleagues. I've seen it amongst my friends. I actually come from a very diverse family, ethnically. And so I've seen the prejudice face to face. I've experienced this and it touches me personally because it's it's a failure which is addressable. Yeah, It's addressable by recognizing it and challenging it. And in my book, I talk a lot about how when the public has seen injustices and challenged it, they are able to change the standards, to change the norms. And so a lot of my book is meant to write to a lay audience, empower them so that when they see an injustice, whether it's uh, the senior death discount where the uh, Environmental Protection Agency wanted to value older lives less, and they pushed back on it, when they see injustices in other situations, to, to challenge it, to push back on it, because what you'll find is that Often, when enough people get mobilized to fight for justice, that the world does get a little bit more fair. So I want to have one last question coming back to the, the, the price of life and some of the different perspectives that people have out there about opening up the economy, uh, given the, the economic cost that is having. And you hear some politicians and even some people who are going out and protesting in front of the governor's uh, mansions or in front of the, the state capitals and they're talking about, you know, it's okay. We, we will, we need to uh, open up the economy. And if that costs a few old people's lives and they typically say, you know, older people's lives because of, of obviously the, the prevalence of, of those people dying more likely than younger people. How does that, is that perception, do you think partially, uh, influenced by that individual or those individuals' um, perspective on what a life is worth and what how they value it? Or is there other aspects? And again, asking you to probably speak on, on just some hunches or, or gut feels on that. But what's your take on that? So I guess the, the first take is, and we, we didn't get into it uh, earlier on, but the, the government actually has a very clear principle all lives are valued equally. It's not just written in the laws, but when they do cost-benefit analysis, regulatory agencies, whether it's the Food and Drug Administration, the Environmental Protection Agency, National Transportation uh, Safety Administration, each one of them uses a value of a statistical life, approximately $10 million per person. That's the same number, whether you're rich or poor, old or young, whether you live in a big city or, or in a rural area, no matter what you earn. That's a principle. And if we were approaching this conversation about reopening the way regulatory agencies normally approach conversations about the trade-off of safety and, and economy, that's the approach they would have. All lives would be valued equally, but they would have to do the analysis at a more local level. Now, here's the reality. The reality is that the 
data modeling situation is far more complicated and far more impactful in COVID-19 than it is when we talk about arsenic in the water or pollutants from a coal factory. So this is a much more complicated situation. And we do not have as much clarity in terms of forecasting. And you see this daily as these forecasts get updated every couple of days. So the calculations, I don't think they're able to do them so much in closed form. But that principle that the government has been endorsing, and literally since uh, the Bush Jr. administration, when they tested the waters of valuing lives of older people less, and the public pushed back and said, this is unacceptable, and the government said, okay, we will not do this again. Well, they've accepted that principle. And so this is kind of from our government point of view. As for this question about um, you know how what's motivating individual protesters, it's tough to get into the mindset, but I would have to have you think about whose life are they valuing? Is it their own or is it someone else's? Because what makes this COVID situation and any situation where it's a transmittable factor is it's not just about my safety. It's the actions I take and how they impact others, others who may be at much higher risk. And that mm -hmm. may not just be the older person. You know, in here around me, there's tons of homeless people, and they are not only exposed to the environments, but they also often have a lot of health risks. And that person is going to struggle if they end up getting the same infection that I'm going, I get. So it's not just about me and my personal health or my family's health, but it's thinking about it from a society perspective. And that's that's a different point of view. I'm not sure that everyone is thinking about it from that broader point of view. Yeah. But context matters, right? Context matters. Perspective matters. So right at the very beginning, we talked about this whole, all these equations very much depend on what perspective am I taking? What am I trying to reflect? Am I trying to reflect my own value? You know, whether it's life insurance, am I trying to reflect the value associated with a for-profit company and the the costs and benefits? Or am I looking at it from a society point of view, like a regulatory agency? Those perspectives will change what is in and what is not in the calculations, as well as how I treat the value of different lives. Howard Friedman, thank you so much for joining us on Behavioral Groups today. Uh, thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Welcome to the special edition grooving session where Tim and I groove on some ideas and concepts that were inspired by our conversation with Howard. All right, Mr. Houlihan, how much is your life worth? $2 an hour. $2 an hour. <laughs> yeah, let's just start low and then we can negotiate up from there. No, I should start <laughs> high. It's worth... It's worth $1 billion. A billion dollars. No, but uh, th this is interesting, right? This idea, as much as I hate to think about it, that corporations, government, that we all have a value on our lives. And that value is dependent upon a number of other things. And this idea that corporations make human life valuations regularly was highlighted by his conversation about, you know, Pinto and and yeah. all of that, right? Yeah, the the Ford story is 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 particularly great. Toyota as well, but they have to make a calculation on some level, and it leads me to question: Is the value that they're putting on us too low? Because it doesn't seem to be high enough to offset uh, the the desire to just build in poorer quality. Yeah. To just allow for poorer quality in all these products, you know, uh, you know, there, we have a lot of biomedical companies based here in the in the Twin Cities in Minneapolis and you know they have what they call internally they call bet the company kinds of products where mm. if there's one major class action lawsuit the company goes down they're just done and and that works against a lot of people's best interest so yeah. so they they don't think about it as one life but they think about it as a class action lawsuit where Boom, the whole company gets shut down. And that might be a more appropriate way to deal with it because Ford and, Ford and Toyota are certainly not looking at it that way. No. And, and you think about are, how much are they undervaluing lives just to – because then that makes that cost ROI calculation going, oh, well, we'll get sued. It'll cost us X because each life is going to be worth Y. There's going to be 150 deaths from this. 
and, and, and where do we as a society, where, where does that come into play? So, which well, then lends, oh, go ahead. Well, this just reminds me of Amazon says, well, hazard pay during this is an extra $2 an hour. <laughs> 18 or $16 a day. That's what, that's, that's where your $2, uh, that's what your life was worth, right? Is that $2 that you got extra pay because you're putting your, your life at risk. And, yeah. you, you know, but again, you think about some of these occupations. I mean, when you think about occupations where there's high hazard, it's, it's, you know, fishing it's um working in timber uh it's it's um really dangerous know, work yeah dangerous work they're not high paying jobs yeah, they cops. are not yeah, yeah. P- police officers don't make $500,000 a year yeah when their life is on the line on a regular basis yeah so we think about all of this and we think about the aspects of how we value work that's dangerous and yeah uh, it doesn't really, it doesn't correlate in in my mind. Yeah. Right? Okay. So, uh, okay. That's a good rant. What, what, what was important for you in this conversation with Howard, well, which was wonderful, by the way, Lo- we loved it. Yeah. <laughs> you love my rants. My rants are always, yeah. uh, anyway, no, what I found interesting is just the conversation as we're thinking about COVID and the pandemic, as well as how the response has been there. And who are the people who are able to get the tests? It's the rich. It's oh, the famous. Yeah. It's this idea of, hey, those people that are in the food processing plant aren't getting tested, but damn everybody in the MLB uh, and their wives and you know everybody else are getting tested because, hey, sports figures are much more important than our food supply. Um, yeah, and that sucks. Honestly, <laughs> that, that just sucks because uh, for for me, as someone who is not rich and famous, I'm interested in having my food supply, you know, carefully vetted. So yeah. I want the I want the workers in those plants to be clean as a whistle, and and I want my food. I mean, I want my my you know food to not be. 500 times what it was just two months ago because now all these food processing plants are shut down and there's only one left to right now because of you know supply and demand what is it i saw beef went from a dollar 83 a pound to up like seven dollars a pound at its peak uh-huh. yeah crazy and that's because of these types of things yeah so when we're you know, and that's a selfish reason. Uh, and I'm not, that's not even uh, thinking about those poor people who are working in those plants who are getting sick and potentially dying because of this. They have. We, there have been have. in Minnesota at food processing plants, people have died. Uh, and, and guess what? They're not white. Most of them are uh, brown or black. And yeah. that's, um, there's a, issue there. But uh, the thing that really struck me that made me feel hopeful about this was uh, when Howard was talking about uh, Kenneth Feinberg, yeah. about how he was negotiating the victims, um, recovery uh, payouts for 9-11, and, and he advocated the right thing, but through the course of politics and negotiation, it doesn't come out right, right? That there's this huge variety in uh, in payouts to the victims, just wide variety, which they took into consideration gender and ethnicity and earning potential and age and all these kinds of things that that, as Howard pointed out, doesn't really really doesn't matter if you die. It's you're a hu- it's a human life. Right. And then and then he went to the Boston Marathon, which Kenneth Feinberg was also responsible for, and they made it nice and even. Yeah. Everybody gets the same payout, and yeah. I, I really love that. I thought that that was. That was terrific. And that gave me some hope. Yeah, th- there's a fairness component to that. But again, we go back in context matters and you could you could argue that, hey, is a child's life more valuable than somebody who is 75, 80 years? The years of life left, expected years of life left. Um, and you can have those arguments. And that's what's hard about this. That's a, it, it, it would be easy if we could just put a price tag. Everybody's life is worth $10 million. It doesn't matter. But yes. that's not the reality of how we think about it. It goes back to the trolley, you know. Uh, experiments of, all right, am I going to, you know, pull the lever and kill four people or, or pull the lever or not pull the lever and kill one, but that one is somebody I know, or that one is a, as a child or a baby and the four are elderly or 
you know, the four are, you know, prison convicts and the one is somebody who is, you know, or, or vice versa, right? And, um, and, and I would argue that that's a distortion that takes us away from the central point that a human life is a human life. That a, that a woman who was disabled and dies in a coma in her uh, or in her nursing home, and because she didn't have a job and she had no dependents, the payout is zero. For the, for the life insurance policy on her life, there's no liability to the organization. That does not make any sense to me. A I would agree life, with there. A human life is a human life. I agree. I, I'm, I, and I'm, I'm not disagree. I'm, I'm agreeing with you on on that. <laughs> is there a big uh, butt coming though? No, I just <laughs> my my thought around that though is that so many people view this from that more calculative perspective. And we know human emotions come into this and we have this idea that, you know, a life of a child that has a lot of potential is some innate value more than somebody who only has a year or two left in, in, in their life. And that's hard to reconcile, not saying that it's right or wrong, I'm actually agreeing with you that there should be some that that person who's in the nursing home in a coma, there's a there's a value to that life. There is a value to the people that she that love her and that she loves. And we we discount that way too much in my mind. And there needs to be a better way. Thank you for listening to the special episode of Behavior Grooves. We hope that you found it interesting and insightful. If you liked it, please let others know. We think that the topic is important and maybe we can help in educating people about how behavioral science can help us all out in this current craziness that we are going through. Also, please let us know if you have any thoughts or ideas that would be helpful or that we could share. You can reach us through the Connect tab on the Behavioral Grooves website at www.behavioralgrooves.com or through Twitter. I'm at T. Houlihan and Kurt is at What Motivates. We really do love hearing from you. And this topic is one that spurs lots of emotions and thought. As part of our mission, we want to expand and inform the community of people who think about positively applying behavioral science to life. One way that happens is through leaving reviews. If you think this podcast is beneficial and should grow, we would really appreciate to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast server you use. It only takes a few minutes and goes a long way to boost us in the algorithms that are used to generate search results. Also, please check out the show notes. We are linking to a number of resources articles, podcasts, newsletters that we vetted to bring good facts and ideas around COVID-19 and the coronavirus, its impact and ways that we can help slow down the spread. There is a lot of information that's being pushed out to everyone each day, and we are weeding through it to find good stuff so that you don't have to. We truly appreciate you listening. Now go out and wash your hands. <laughs>